Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Amen. And again, I want to welcome you, those of you that just came in. We are so honored to have you here today. We believe, those of you watching online as well, we believe everyone matters to God. So you matter. And we hope that you experience his love and his grace in your life today. It's, again, it's awesome to be a part of a city where churches don't just coordinate to do good things, but that we also recognize we have a shared faith and a shared vision for revival in this city, for God to blow up in this city. Jesus didn't give his life just to build denominations. Can I get an amen? All right, Jesus didn't give his life on the cross for us to build organizations and, and compete with one another. He built the church so that the gates of hell could not prevail against it. This is why he built the church. And after he rose from the dead, he sent the Holy Spirit so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be united in one Lord, one faith, one baptism for the glory of God our Father and to encourage and build each other up until Christ returns. And this weekend, pastors in our ministerial association are, are preaching on the topic of unity. Pastor Rick from City Church is talking about being united in Christ. Pastor Paul of Pine Run Church of Christ is talking about being united in discipleship. Pastor Ryan Glesman of Community Church of God is talking about being united in boldness. And today, beloved, we are talking about being united in prayer. And it's such an amazing thing to be partnering to know brothers in Christ and leaders in the city have caught this vision. And uh, later this week, you'll be able to go online to the Clio Area Ministerial Association Facebook page and watch those services and those messages. And I encourage you to do so to not only hear what God is doing in other churches, but to also help celebrate the unity and favor he's bringing to our city. It's an awesome thing that God is doing. And it's awesome about how God is working and bringing this message today because it rightly fits in where we've been as a church going through the Old Testament and through the scriptures to see how God has revealed Jesus from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, even in the book of Exodus where we've been talking about how the very tabernacle of God reveals who the Messiah would be, what he would be like, what he would do, and how those pictures are fulfilled in Jesus. And this week, we will venture inside to that tabernacle and see pictures of what was contained in there and how uh, that reveals, those elements reveal God and that in order for us to see a revival in our day to show what God thousands of years ago in the tabernacle revealed to us as the mechanism or the, the formula of how we could see revival in our time. And it's my heart that the body of Christ awakens to the vision of prayer, to the heart of prayer. And we're we're going to get into this. We're going to kind of take, it, it, if you ever take a ride and you know how to get the shortcuts, often like we're in a hurry, we want to take a shortcut to wherever we're going, fastest way possible. Speed limit says 70, but our speedometer says 85. You know, we're trying to get there as fast as possible. Today we're going to kind of take the long way around. But ultimately, at the end, we're going to see how prayer is the fuel for revival and how it's connected and how God all along has been encouraging us to be a people of prayer. Now, 
When we talk about revival, we'll say this word in the church. You'll, you'll hear it. A, a lot of times churches will have revival meetings and they'll set a tent up outside or maybe they'll just have a service every night of the week and they'll say, invite your friends. We're having revival. And an evangelist will come in and they'll preach and in the effort to get people saved. And we'll talk about this. We'll use this word in the church. We'll talk about revival and refer to people getting excited again about the Lord and that the mysterious things of God begin to be more visible and more frequent for a season. But if you think about the word revive, the word revive, the very definition of it means to restore to life or consciousness, to regain life, consciousness, or strength. Literally, to resurrect something. This is what revival means. So if we, the, the children of God, if we, the church, if we are praying for revival, if we're seeking a move of God and emphasizing revival, what is it we're actually admitting? We're admitting that something's dead that needs to be resurrected. Right? You can't revive something that wasn't first vived. The word vived means living. So in order to revive something, it has to first die. So when we're calling on God for revival, what we're admitting is that something that once was alive has died, and we're asking God to raise it back again. To call on God for revival in the church, what we're admitting is that the church was once alive and now has died, or at least it's on its deathbed and it's getting ready to die. It's sick. It's not what it's supposed to be. Just like the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus appears to the apostle John and he has him write seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation. And in the church of Laodicea, he talks about that they were lukewarm, that they weren't hot or cold. If you think about the illustration Jesus is giving, he's saying you're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. When something is cold, it's refreshing when you're really hot. When you've been running or exercising, you've been, you know, doing extraneous exercise, it's really refreshing to take a nice drink of cold water or cold tea, iced tea or something like that. When you're freezing, you're outside working in the cold or, or you know, you're cold in a room, it's really comforting to pour yourself a glass of hot coffee or, or hot cocoa. Right? When something is cold, it's refreshing. When something's warm, it's, it's comforting. But when something becomes lukewarm, it loses the effectiveness. Lukewarm water that's been set out over time means that something that was cold was warmed or something that was hot was cooled. And Jesus said, I will spit the lukewarm out of my mouth. I'd always joke around with my wife because I tell her all the time that I don't like drinking water bottles that have been set out because lukewarm water tastes like sweat. That's what it does. It's, it's gross. And it reminds me of the, the movie Signs that, that M. Night Shyamalan made a long time ago with Mel Gibson. You know, the little girl would start to drink a glass of water and then she wouldn't finish it and she'd say it's contaminated. Right? Lukewarm water tastes contaminated. This is why Jesus spews the lukewarm out of your mouth. When water stops being used for its purpose... And just sets out, unless it's kept on ice or on a warmer, it becomes lukewarm. So in essence, what we're asking the Lord, we're saying, God, we're talking about revival. God, we recognize what was once refreshing, what was once warmed, 
has now cooled. What was once cold has now warmed. It's, it's lost its effectiveness. We lost what we once were, and now, God, we're asking you for revival. Somebody turn to your neighbor and say, God, revive us today. God, revive us today. We're calling on God for revival. And as we look at our nation, we see what was once a Christian nation has now turned into an anti-religion, everyone for themselves, immoral and perverse people. And we're crying out as the body of Christ. We're crying out for a move of God that God would kindle the flames of revival in our land. That God would restore us to a holy and righteous people. There are three types of revival we often ask God for. One is national revival. That God would restore faith to our nation. That we would walk in godliness. Number two, corporate revival. That God would move powerfully again in our churches. And number three, personal revival. That God, you'd move powerfully in me. Revive me, O Lord. But see, before we can expect a move in our nation, we first need to see a move in the church. The first area of revival we're going to look at is corporate revival. Corporate revival is simply that the church wakes up out of apathy and lukewarmness, once again has zeal for the house of God, begins to corporately follow Christ in how we live, love, and worship, and that His Holy Spirit is free to work and move among us, His presence is felt, lives are changed, miracles happen, and Jesus is glorified. That's corporate revival. That's what we're asking God for this weekend. That's what Christians all over the nation gathered not, not just a few days ago in the Washington, Washington D.C. to call on God to return our nation, calling on revival. Now, there's a prominent church in biblical times. Again, in the book of Revelation, one of the letters that Jesus wrote to this church, it was a once thriving church. The power of God was uh, available in this church. God moved among them. They had authority over the enemy. They had a thriving church in the midst of great paganism. They had powerful teaching. They knew their identity in Christ. They continued to stand against sin, but effectiveness in their ministry began to wane because even though they were doing a lot of the right things, they had a lot of the stuff on the outside was in place. A lot of their exterior works were, were right, the heart of the people in the church became disconnected from God and one another, and so they were on the verge of collapse. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Jesus, to the church of Ephesus, has John write this. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You've discovered they're all liars. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. Like, it seems like these guys are doing what's right, right? They're standing against evil. They're exposing false teachers. They're, they're holding fast to their faith. But here's what he says. I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. You have all this stuff going on on the outside. From the exterior, you look like super Christians, but you have a problem. You have no love. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand. Somebody say lampstand. 
I will remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Ephesus was a church in need of revival. And really, because they weren't dead yet, it's not revival they needed. They needed renewal. Renewal is the replacing or repair of something that's worn out, run down, or broken. Many of us need renewal. The churches today need renewal. Ephesus needed to be spiritually renewed. Jesus said, unless you repent. Repentance means you admit that what is in your life, something's in your life that's out of agreement with God's nature, character, his perfect will, his word, and you turn away from it. You don't continue to walk down the path of it and accept it and agree with it. You come out of agreement, you turn away from it, and you begin pursuing what is in God's perfect will, what is according to his nature, his character, and his very word. Repent. Turn from where you are. And in their case, it was their love. They didn't love God or each other the way they did at the beginning. They were religious, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And ultimately, they became known for more for what they hated than for who they loved. And it's a sad fact in our day that many Christians, many churches are known more for what they hate than who they love. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples, not because of who you hate, but beloved, because of how you love one another. And because they lost their love, God was going to remove their candlestick from among the place of the churches. Now, this is where understanding of the tabernacle of Moses is key. Because when you walk into the tabernacle of Moses, the first room you come to, there's only two rooms. The first one you come to was called the holy place. When God gave Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle on Mount Sinai, he gave him specific instructions in this holy place, in this room, there were only three things you could find. On the left, you had the golden lampstand. In the center, you had the altar of incense. And on the right, you had the table of showbread. And we understand that everything in the tabernacle reflects or reveals Jesus in some way. So when we look at the table of showbread, we can show the picture up there on the screen. The table of showbread had 12 loaves of bread and a pitcher of fragranted or spiced wine. And as we look at the table of showbread, we can look at it symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, but ultimately the number 12 also is connected to God's righteous government or his judgment. And so the table of bread and wine is similar to the table we approach at the communion table between Jesus with his body and his blood. And what we can see is through the blood and the bread, or the wine and the bread, the blood and the body, God, through the sacrifice of Christ, is going to institute a new government that the kingdom of God is going to come from heaven to the earth. That God is going to open the door to the kingdom of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says the government would be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus would open the door to the government, the righteous government of God through his sacrifice on the cross. The next item in the tabernacle was the lampstand. We can show the picture of the lampstand. This lampstand was made of solid gold. It, had, it was one piece of gold. It had seven candlesticks connected to the lampstand. 
And it stood, it was the only light in the tabernacle. It was the only thing that provided light in the very tabernacle. And if we can think of the very presence of God as the tabernacle on earth represents the dwelling place of God in heaven, the tabernacle or the lampstand in the tabernacle also represents something very significant. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 4, Jesus says this. He says, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, and grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. From the sevenfold, what's that word? Spirit that is before the throne of God. So before the throne of God, we have the table of showbread and the lampstand. Here, God, through John, is revealing before his throne is another sevenfold entity, but it is not a, a lampstand. It is the spirit of the living God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Not only is the sevenfold spirit before the throne of God, the light of the spirit of God emanating in the throne, but Jesus is the one who has the sevenfold spirit. And when Jesus came to the earth and was baptized, what we saw was the spirit of God descend upon him uh, like a dove, and it rested on him. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it's, this is talking of the Messiah. It says, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of the counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the sevenfold spirit that is before the throne of God, represented by the lampstand of God, the light of God, came upon the Messiah, illuminated Jesus, and empowered him for his ministry. There are seven spirits contained in the Holy Spirit. Seven aspects or natures or characters. The Holy Spirit is represented as the sevenfold spirit of God. As well as the lampstand in the tabernacle was fueled by oil. It was pure olive oil that they used to burn the light. It wasn't candle wax like what we would use today. In Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21, here's what God commands Moses. He says, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light. To keep the lamps burning continually, the lampstand will stand in the tabernacle in front of the inner curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron and his sons must keep the lamps burning in the Lord's presence all night. This is a permanent law for the people of Israel, and it must be observed from generation to generation. Oil is also synonymous in Scripture with the anointing power or blessing of the Holy Spirit. And here God commands the people, bring your oil to the tabernacle so the priests can keep the lampstand lit. So if you think about it, it was up to the people to provide the fuel for the lampstand. In the tabernacle that represents the presence of God, it was up to the people to provide the fuel. They would bring the fuel, and the priests would keep it lit. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus, talking to the church of Ephesus, he tells them, if you don't repent and go back and do the first works, I am going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove your candlestick. What is he saying? He says, I am going to remove the power, the presence, and the light of the Spirit of God in your gathering. You're not bringing the oil to keep the flame lit. So if you're not going to invest in what we're doing here, 
I'm going to remove the lampstand altogether. And you wonder why you can walk into a church building and it feels dead. It's because the people are not bringing the oil to light the lamp. The people bring the, the oil to keep the flame burning. What is it? It is passion for the Lord and love for one another. That is the oil that fills the lamp. Every gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, these things are amazing, but I will show you a better way. Love is the better way. Love, the gifts of the Spirit are the love languages of God. God desires his people to be madly in love with him and that that love would overflow to how we love and care for other people. If we have not love, it profits us nothing. And so God will remove the candlestick. We might gather together, but there'll be no light. Your church that once was alive in the light of God will be dead in the coldness of your hearts. The people bring the fuel. And this is the call of, to the people of God in every church. If your ministry is in need of revival, if it's in need of renewal, it won't happen with just another plan or strategy. I'm speaking to leaders in the church today that might be watching online. Revival will not happen through another plan or strategy. The fuel that fans revival into flame is a burning passion for the Lord and care and compassion for other people. The more we're about processes and systems than we are about the hearts of people and our hearts before the Lord, we're never going to see the burning light of the Spirit, but it's going to continue to dim as we're on the path to lukewarmness. Jesus is the one who has the sevenfold spirit. Corporate revival in the church begins when people wake up to realize that they've lost their first love and passionately pursue a renewing love for Jesus. You see, beloved, before we can have national revival in our nation, we first need to sneak before we can have corporate revival to personal revival. See, it's because people are the ones that fill the pews or the seats. People. People are the ones that steer the nation. People are the ones that vote for those in office. It's people. And if we're going to see a move of God in our nation, if we're going to see a move of God in the church, we first need to see a move of God in our hearts. There's a very famous passage of Scripture in 2 Chronicles 7.14. This is the blueprint for revival in Scripture. Many have taught on this. God tells the nation of Israel, if you get to a place where you turn away, your hearts pull away, and judgment ends up coming, and, and your nation is destroyed, and you get drawn out, if you, you get pulled out of this place of blessing because you've forsaken my law, you've forsaken my covenant, you've forsaken your relationship with me, if you would come here, he says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, they'd seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and restore their land. He's saying, if you get to a place where your candlestick is removed, the light is gone, and you wake up to that reality like, oh God, where have I gone? I'm far from you. There's a way to return. It is to come and pray, repent, seek his face, and then God will hear. 
national revival is on the heart of God. Corporate revival is on the heart of God. But the formula for a move of God, the birthplace of revival and renewal is in the heart of every believer. You see, we often think that revival is something we need to convince God to do. Revival is not our idea. Revival is God's. It's God's idea for his sheep who wander away to come back into the sheepfold, to come back into his presence. Jesus told the Ephesians to repent, go back and do the first works. Here in Chronicles, he says, turn from your wicked ways. Turn from the things that are pulling your heart away from me, that are preventing me from blessing your lives. If I can't bless your life, how am I going to bless your church? Or how am I going to bless your nation? Think about this, beloved. If sin breaks the heart of God because he sees what it does to his people, why would God bless your life so you could sin more? Why would he put you in a place to amplify sin in your life? No, sin and Jesus are in opposite directions. It's like a sprint. Jesus is running this way. Sin is running this way. And you have to decide which direction you're going to turn, who you're going to pursue. Jesus and sin are not in the same place. Sin breaks the heart of God. God's not going to send revival when the conditions for revival are not ready. The first place that revival needs to be cultivated is in the heart of those who say they believe. If my people who are called by my name. Revival begins in me. Revival begins in you. Sin and Jesus are on two sides of the spectrum. If you're not traveling in the same direction of the Lord, you will not be around for the blessing when he pours it out. Ephesians 4, 21 through 32, Paul, to the church of Ephesus, before they are even rebuked by the Lord, here's what he tells them, instructs them about repentance. He says, since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Stop telling lies. Tell your neighbors the truth, for we're all parts of the same body. Don't let sin, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to those in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he's identified you as his own, guaranteeing you'll be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Repent. Quit pursuing sin and being okay with sin and agreeing with brokenness but pursue Jesus in his heart. Let the new nature come out of you. Don't let the enemy rob you of your blessing because of the footholds you are permitting to go on in your life. Repentance is not simply saying I've done wrong and asking forgiveness. It's turning the other way and behaving differently because you finally agree with what God is saying. Because you've awoken to the reality of how great his love is for you. And how devastating sin is in your life and the life of those you love. 
In our world today, there's so many excuses for sin in the body of Christ. And God is calling us back to our first love. In 2 Peter 3, Peter tells husbands, he says, treat your spouses like the weaker vessel. Treat them like a delicate object so that your prayers are not hindered. The enemy wants to hinder your prayer. He wants to hinder your relationship with God. He wants to create strongholds and footholds in your life so God can't bless you the way he desires. And so God is calling us to rebuke the devil, turn from sin, pursue him again so that God can pour out his blessings on our lives. Believers need to repent and stop going through life and acting like what we do doesn't matter. Paul said in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves. They'll love pleasure more than they love God. Jesus said, or he also said, they'll act religious but deny the power that can make them godly. Jesus called it right in the last days. He said people won't even be married or given in marriage. The covenant of marriage will mean nothing in the last days. And we live in a culture of cohabitation, playing house. And rather than chastity before marriage and fidelity in marriage, giving honor to the marriage covenant before God, it's porn, it's sex before marriage, it's adultery, it's hookup, shack up, break up, divorce, repeat, repeat, repeat. And it's just as rampant in the body of Christ as it is in the world. God is calling us out of the world, beloved, not to be copying the behaviors and customs of the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. To guard our heart above all else because it determines the course of our life. God rightly describes us as sheep because we're easily deceived and easily led astray. There are believers today, even probably right now, that are debating whether or not it's permissible to abort a child, to murder a baby for the sake of inconvenience. God is calling the people of God to repentance, to come back to his heart. If we truly want revival, it requires Repentance, because repentance is what moves you into the position to be revived. The Lord says, turn from your wicked ways and seek his face. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, he says, humble yourself. What's that mean? He says, be real. Get real. Be 100. No more deception. No more lies. No more overlooking things because you don't want to deal with it. Get real with yourself and confess your sin to the Lord. Humble yourself and pray. And when we repent and we seek the Lord, we unleash the power of revival. But we also have to pray. Why? Why do we need to pray? Because it's through our prayers that God activates his response. In 2 Chronicles 7, 15 and 16, at the end of that passage where he's giving us the blueprint for revival, he says, if you repent, you seek my face, and you pray, here's what's going to happen. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. So it's not just repent. It's not just turn away. It's then seek the presence of God, seek him, and pray. Because through your prayer, God's going to begin to let that blessing flow. His eyes are going to be attentive. His eyes are going to be laser fixed. His ears are going to be focused. Relentless pursuit of prayer turns the eyes and ears of the Lord to be fixed on you with a repentant heart. God gets your attention, then you get his. What is in your life, beloved? What do you need to seek God to direct his attention to 
now. Maybe you're struggling in your workplace. Maybe there's a health issue, a relationship issue, whatever it is. God wants to put laser focus on that issue, and he's calling you to come pursue him. But first, you must be humble and real with yourself. And when you do, God will hear. Why? Verse 16. It says, I have chosen this what? I've chosen this. Say that out loud. I've chosen this temple and set it apart to be a holy place where my name will be honored forever. And I will always watch over it for it is dear to my heart. The temple of Solomon replaced the tabernacle when Israel finally made it in to the promised land. And even though that structure does not stand today because they forsook their covenant and God brought judgment into the land, there is a temple that is standing today. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Paul tells us what the temple is. He says, don't you realize that your body is what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. His lampstand is glowing in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. You don't belong to yourself because God purchased you with a high price. The blood in the body of Jesus. So what? You must honor God with your body. If you're a believer in Jesus, God purchased you. You're his possession. And he has given you the Holy Spirit. He has made your body his dwelling place. You are the temple of God. And his lampstand dwells in you. You are the tabernacle of God. You're the place of meeting. The tabernacle, in that inner place, that first room, you could only go so far because there was a giant curtain separating you from the next room. That curtain was called the veil. And it separated the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was resting. That's, that's God's throne. That's where the atonement sacrifice, the blood of the atonement would be poured on to absolve the nation of their sin for a year. And the priest could only go in there one time a year. That was, it was off limits. It was restricted. The very presence of God was restricted from people, even though the tabernacle was in the midst of the people. And this is so significant because the other item in the holy place was the altar of incense. Let me go ahead and show the picture for the altar of incense. The altar of incense sat in front of the veil that separated the people from the Ark of the Covenant. And the altar of incense represents something so significant and so powerful. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, here's what John records. He says, another angel with a gold incense burner. This is in heaven, in the tabernacle in heaven where God dwells. He says, an angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. The altar of incense in the tabernacle reflected the altar of incense before the throne of God. He says, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the what? The prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The incense in the tabernacle represents God communing with man. Prayer to God eternally. And when God instructed Moses about the altar of incense, how to create this altar, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 6, here's what he says. He says, place the incense altar just outside the inner curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant in front of the Ark's cover, the place of atonement. That covers the tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. And I will what? I will meet with you there. 
when God met with man, the reason why the tabernacle was called the tent of meeting is because at this location, at the altar of incense, is where God would meet with man. It's where his presence would come from behind the curtain and come and meet and speak and commune. This is why it was so significant. Now the priests were to burn incense day and night to keep the fragrance rising up just as they were keep the lamps lit with the oil. And this is the place where God would meet with man. And I don't want you to miss this because this is so powerful. If you capture what is happening here in Exodus chapter 30 verse 10. And the instructions given to Moses. It says, once a year Aaron must purify the altar by smearing its horns with blood from the offering made to purify the people for their sin. This will be a regular annual event from generation to generation. For this is, what does that say? The Lord's most holy altar. The altar of prayer is the most holy altar. Now you would think the most holy, what was most sacred to God, the most special altar might be the altar of sacrifice because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that that would be the place where sin could be atoned because without the shedding of blood, you cannot have forgiveness of sins. But no, the altar of sacrifice was not the most sacred, the most holy. Maybe the lampstand that represented the Holy Spirit might be the most holy. But no, that's not the most holy thing in the tabernacle to God. Or maybe the showbread that represents the body and blood of Christ and his eternal uh, just government coming into fruition in the kingdom of God. No, that's not the most holy altar. The most holy, the most sacred, the most honored altar in the tabernacle is the altar of prayer. The place where God meets with his people. When God said to humble yourself and pray in 2 Chronicles 7, he also said to seek his face. That means seek my presence. Come before me. Where do we seek his face, beloved? It's in that place of prayer. It's in the place where God meets with man. Prayer is so sacred to the Lord. It's the most holy place. It's the place of intimacy with his people. If Jesus is our groom and we are his bride, the consummation of relationship happens in the place of prayer. Prayer is essential for revival in every level, but especially for corporate prayer in the church. Mark 11, verse 17, Jesus is rebuking these religious leaders and he scolds them and he says this. He says, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of what? My temple will be called a house of what? Come on, you can do better than that. My temple will be called a house of what? But you have turned it into a den of thieves. My house shall be a house of prayer. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus turns over the tables of the money changers because they had made the house of God into a marketplace. And in today's church, rather than a house of prayer, what do we go for? What do we look for? 
What do leaders all over run campaigns and strategy meetings? It's market strategy. It's gimmicks in the church with logos and entertainments to build crowds and to fabricate excitement. But you can't fabricate encounter. You can't fabricate the presence of God. You can create excitement. You can put a smile on someone's face. But there is a difference between something I do in my flesh and when God enters a room. And today's church, rather than a house of prayer, the church is run like a marketplace. Maybe the reason why the spirit is dead in your church is because rather than fueling the lampstand with the passion of the people, you've exchanged it for a sweet lighting rig to the praise team. Don't get me wrong, beloved, I love technology, but you cannot fabricate encounter. When God spoke to me this week in the call on his church, if we're serious about revival in this nation and in the church, it's that the flames of revival are fueled by the prayers of God's people. The flames of revival are sustained and fueled by the prayers of God's people. The priest kept the fires lit, but the people had to bring the oil and kept the altar burning with incense. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Beloved, why do people go to church? Is it for the prayer meeting? No. It's for the style of music. Why do people today go to church? Well, it's because they have better coffee than they do. Why do people go to church? It's because, well, this kid's ministry, they have a slide in their church, and this one over here is still using old-fashioned flannel graphs. It's, well, I like how this pastor tells jokes. Well, I like how this pastor uses the King James Version. I like this, and I like this. Sounds to me like a buffet line and not a house of prayer. My house shall be known as a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Today, it seems like every pastor wants a best-selling book to have a name for themselves, when we're only supposed to be about one name. There's only one name under heaven by we must be saved. There's only one name above every name, and that's the name of Jesus. In Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, Aaron's sons didn't follow the commandments of the Lord, and they threw together something for the incense altar when God specifically told them what to burn on the altar, and they brought what the Bible calls strange fire. In verses 1 through 3 of Leviticus 10, it says... Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, put coals of fire in their incense burners, sprinkled incense over them. In this way, they disobeyed the Lord by burning before him the wrong kind of fire or strange fire, different than he commanded. So fire blazed forth from the Lord's presence and burned them up, and they died there before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord meant when he said, I will display my holiness through those who come near me. I will display my glory before all people. And Aaron was silent. What can you say when God moves? What excuse do you have? There's only one kind of fire on the incense altar. In the place where God meets with man, and that's the prayer of his people. Anything less, God does not accept. And it leads to the death of ministry, the death of vibrancy in your personal spiritual life, the death of the hope of a nation. To turn back to God. 
But yet many leaders today are substituting the incense that is sweet to God and applying strange fire on his altar. Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Prayer is so important for a church. It's so important for each and every one of us. Prayer is the lifeblood of your spiritual life, the lifeblood of the church. It draws you into the presence of God, into the spirit. Prayer disarms the flesh. In Galatians 5, it says, if you walk in the spirit, you'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So if you're meeting with God and you're walking into that spirit, it's going to disarm the flesh. It releases the word of God. And we see in scripture, it even assigns angels their duties. In Daniel chapter 10, Acts 12, Isaiah 36. How many of you are going through something now? You could use a few extra angels fighting on your behalf. Prayer releases the power of God and assigns angels their tasks. It provides a covering for one another. Pray for one another. Uh, it also opens the door to healing. In James 5, pray for one another and you shall be healed. Prayer is the oil that keeps the flame of the Spirit burning in your heart. It's what maintains your connection to God. It's so important that in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, never stop praying. Pray always. One of our core values at our church is unceasing prayer. Never let your connection to God die out. Press in. Pursue Him. And over and over again, when Jesus was struggling, when He was going through difficult times, He'd go alone to pray, to be with His Father. Over and again, we're encouraged to pray without ceasing. Pray in the Spirit. Pray for our enemies. Pray for those in need. Pray for healing. Pray for deliverance. Prayer over our cities. Pray for our towns. Pray for our nations. Pray for our leaders and our governments. Pray for believers everywhere. Pray for the needs. Pray for the needs of others. Pray prayers of confession. Pray prayers of forgiveness. Pray His promises. Whatever we pray for, ask in Jesus' name, believing, and we will receive it. There's so much to pray for, and it's my belief that when the fire of God begins to die in a church, it's because they lost the vision of prayer. They lost the call. The miracle of prayer is not what we get out of it, but it's in who we get through it. We get to meet with God and encounter His presence. I want to be honest with you today as we begin to close, and I want to invite the worship team up. Three years ago as a church and as a family, we went through probably the hardest season of our lives. We were growing and growing and growing for the first three years, but then we had a crisis and from that point on, we began to shrink and shrink and shrink. And God showed us a lot, of, a lot of things. And I'm thankful for a wife who encourages greater faith than me and friends who encourage me. But not 12 months ago, we were at the lowest part probably of our attendance of our church. We were running about 25. Week after week, we'd be pouring our hearts out, praying, God, do something. God, change lives. Very few people coming forward, very few testimonies. We pursued, we prayed, we're, God, we're expecting miracles, we're holding on to your promises, but it just seemed like we left discouraged more than we left encouraged. And I began to believe a lot of lies about our ministry, about my calling. My wife and I, on a regular basis, found ourselves literally crying out to the Asking God, what are you doing? What are we supposed to do? Everything seems to be crumbling and falling apart. And not more than 12 months ago, I was seriously praying and considering whether or not we needed to 
merge our ministry with somebody else or even just simply close it all together. I was that discouraged. My wife encouraged me, friends like Dave and Janice who weren't here today, they, they're friends we've been able to confide in and pray through and they encouraged us. We call them our crazy faith friends. But in that moment when I was feeling like there's nothing else we could do, we were at our end. My wife encouraged me to call Dave and I called him and I explained all these things, all these signs I thought I was seeing. It was just a big ball of confusion. And at the end of it, Dave said, have you had a clear word from God that you're to shut down, that you're to change, you're to move? And I said, no, everything kind of points to the opposite. I just can't shake this feeling. He said, well, if you haven't had a clear word to change, don't change. Keep going. And after that conversation, my wife and I were talking, and she said, you've been believing a lot of lies, Joey, that you need to come out of agreement with. You have things that you need to repent of. You need to get before the Lord, and you need to... Get your heart right before the Lord. And I was outside and I was cleaning our pool and I just began to pray and ask God. I was like, God, you haven't changed, so it's me that's messed up. It's me that's got this confusion. So I'm going to come out of agreement with these lies and I'm going to once again hold on to your promises. I'm going to believe the truth. We're going to keep going. We're not going to merge. We're going to move forward. We're going to keep going the way that you've said. We're going to hold on to the promises that you have spoken. And at the end of that, I felt refreshed and renewed. I knew that God was doing something, and I just felt compelled to go to Walmart, because for some reason in that season, Walmart's where I did all my ministry. And I went to Walmart, and in the parking lot, I had an encounter with this guy. I was talking to him about the Lord, and God had given a word of knowledge, and I was able to pray for healing, and God healed his arm. It was awesome, and it was just a confirmation that God was still in this. God was still moving. And so, so we began to say, okay, despite of what we're seeing, God, we're still going to believe. We're still going to trust. I began to press in and my meditation and prayer in my personal time with God, I began to have encounters with the Lord, began to have more visions of the Lord. And one day I was praying before the Lord and I had a, a vision while I'm praying and I see, I'm in my living room on the couch and I see the living room, but in there was a candlestick. And on the top of a candlestick was a, piece of incense and in the vision I could go up to it and, and, and I could smell the incense and I could feel, I could literally feel in the physical what I was experiencing in the spiritual. And I felt the coolness of the metal of the candlestick and the roughness of the incense. And I felt compelled in this vision to grab the candlestick. When I did, it's like the flame burst like, like a blowtorch, began to blow up into the room and filled the room with light. And I began to pray. And every time I began to pray, it's like energy was released from this flame over and over again. And I began to get the message. My house will be known as a house of prayer. And I knew God was calling us to begin a prayer gathering in our living room. And so we did. We started to pray. And it was only five of us. Five out of 25 is pretty good, I think. But we began to pray and we started asking God, God, what are you doing? God, pour out your spirit. God, build our church. God, give us a vision. God, send us leaders. God, bless this ministry. We know you're not done. God, bless our missionaries. Bless our city. Bring unity into our city. Bring favor into the body of Christ. And we began to pray and God's presence would show up every week. And sometimes we would get to pray and see a healing and, and things would happen. And God was just so faithful. His presence was so faithful. And out of that coming into this year, we started praying about our 2020 vision. We had people dedicate names 
on the altar for people they wanted to see come and be a part of our church. And we just believe God, who can do the impossible, can, can do the impossible in us. And so, God, we're asking you to add 20 families to our church in 2020. God, we, we see that this building has become larger than what we need. God, we want a place of our own. God, provide us a place. Lead us to a place of our own. And through some circumstances, God led us to a piece of property, and we paid cash for it. This year, paid cash for it. And as we're praying, we're like, okay, God, you're doing something. You're, you're doing something. We have this amazing service. The Spirit pours out. I didn't even get to preach my message. And the next week, COVID hits and shuts it all down. But what did we do? We kept praying. We met on Zoom, and we prayed. We went on Facebook Live, and we were praying. We began praying that God would end this thing. He'd bring us back together. And when we were able to come back together, that group of 25 was a little larger. We started with 25 communion cups each week. And each week, Timmy, give me an amen. Five the next week. 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70 on a weekly basis. If you have come here and began attending since COVID was opened it back up, I just want you to stand to your feet. If you were not here prior to COVID, would you stand? We prayed for you. We prayed for you. We prayed for you. We prayed for you. And those that weren't able to make it today, we prayed for you. Thank you. You can be seated. God is answering prayer. The power of prayer is more powerful than we can understand. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Do you need a miracle today? If my people who are called by my name, do you have an issue that you need resolved? If my people who are called by my name, do you want to see revival in this city? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, and I will restore the land. Beloved, my house shall be known as a house of prayer. Revival begins with us. And when your light, and your light, and your light, and your light, and your light comes together in prayer, imagine how bright we can burn. Imagine what God can do. Revival starts with us. Coming before Him. Humbly saying, God, here's where I've been. Here's what I've done. Here's what's in the way. And now, God, I'm turning away from that. And I'm giving you my whole heart. I heard a pastor this week say, repentance it's going down in confession when you kneel, but it's rising altogether new when you stand back up. It's not taking it back with you. It's leaving it there because God wants to meet you in that place of prayer. He wants to do a work in your life. He wants to change you. And not just for you, but for your family, for your city, for the church. He wants revival more than we do. And so the altar call tonight, the altar call this morning is for all of us. It's for every one of us. In just a moment, I'm going to invite us to come. If you're physically able, 
as an act of prophetic declaration, I'm going to ask you to come and fill this place like we're at the Father's feet. And I want you to come and I want you to pray. And just give your heart again to the Lord. And I want you to stay there and I want you to pray for your family, your friends. I want you to pray for this church. That God would come, he would move, that revival would break out. I want you to pray for the churches of this city. I want you to pray for our state. I want you to pray for our government. We know our government needs prayer right now, amen? Pray for our nation. Pray for the soul of America. Pray for the world. There's so many things to pray for, but let's meet with God where he desires to meet with us in that place of prayer. As we pray, my wife is going to just sing over us, and then we'll stand and worship together after a time of prayer. But let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. Lord God, thank you for being with us here today. God, give us a vision for prayer. I believe for our church, for Vertical Life Church, you have proclaimed that we are to raise up prayer warriors and intercessors, to raise up a heart of prayer in this city. So God, let it begin with us. Let it begin here and now. Let it begin in this place with this people and those that are watching online today. God, let it begin with us. If you're online, when we gather together for prayer, you get on your knees there before your screen and you call out to God. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would work and move, God, that we wouldn't come down and stay discouraged. But when we get up, Lord, we would rise with the hope of glory in Jesus Christ. God, we know that your heart for revival is greater than ours. And I pray, God, that you would begin that move this morning. Begin with us. Not because we're worthy, but because you're worthy. God, we need you. We need you. More than we ever realized. We're sorry for turning the church into a marketplace. We're sorry for treating your people, your temple, like a buffet line. We're sorry for forsaking the first works. God, we're sorry for letting our hearts become numb to the passionate love that you desire from your children. God, awaken love again in us this morning. And let the love for you so overflow that it pours out to one another that we don't just love you with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, but we begin to discover what it's like to love our neighbor as ourselves. God, let the lamp of the Spirit burn bright in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. This time, I invite you to come. If you believe that God wants revival, you stand now and come. If you're physically able, I invite you. If you're a believer in Christ, come. Come and pray. Come and intercede. And let's turn this place into a house of prayer. And don't keep your prayer silent before the Lord. Let your voice be declared. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Let your voice be heard. Shake the enemy kingdom with the power of prayer from God's people. Come and you can bow. You can sit. You can pray with people. You can pray along. But let's declare right now.
www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.